Bob Carr, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to this ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by Gordon Holden, Director of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta in Canada. He joined the Canadian Foreign Service in 1976. He served in the East Asian, China, Caribbean, Latin American and Defence Relations Divisions. Abroad, Gordon Holden has been posted to Havana, Hong Kong, Warsaw, Beijing, and as Executive Director of the Canadian Trade Office in Taipei. I've got to say, Gordon, that's a terrific career. It makes one wish one had plunged into a diplomatic cadetship years ago. His last assignment before joining the university in 2008 was Director General of the East Asian Bureau of the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. So today we're going to be discussing Canada-China relations, the role of the US and, uh, as you'd expect, TPP negotiations, but above all, what Australia and Canada can learn from each other as they develop their respective relations with China. Gordon, there's been in Australia in the last year an unmistakable tilt, at least rhetorically, uh, against China. It it seems to some of us that... uh, Our Prime Minister, our Foreign Minister, has been intent in being critical before anything else when it comes to China and its role. The motives for this, to impress the Trump administration or a response to China's rise or a response to misbehaviour by China, uh, we can debate. But is there anything comparable in Canada? It's interesting you should say that. Um, In Canada, our relationship with China is moving precisely in the opposite direction. Since the election of our current government, headed by Justin Trudeau, almost precisely two years ago, uh, the Chinese have characterized the relationship as entering a new golden era. I think in some senses we're catching up where Australia has been in the past. Um, But within Canada itself, led by the government, we are seeing attitudes towards China taking a much more positive aspect. Our previous government had been wary of China, This had been picked up by the Chinese side, and they reacted coolly. Uh, We now see, however, and we've already had one very successful trip by Prime Minister, another coming up very shortly, that um, an understanding for China that uh, Canada is taking a longer-term strategic view and is actually attempting with, let's not say complete success, but with considerable success in leading public opinion and not being caught up in a whipsaw of charge and counter-charge, which I think can be hazardous in terms of managing the relationship. So two things stand out for me in what you said, the longer-term strategic view of the relationship and um, the the leading of public opinion. I I presume you meant towards a a positive view of the the potential of the China relationship. Absolutely, and I think that leadership role is critical. Um, China will always be, to some extent, controversial. I think it's true of great powers. It's true in our case with the United States, where we have a very close, intimate relationship of long-standing. But there's always going to be positive and negative elements. I think in the case of China, where in the Canadian case at least, I don't know about Australia, where understanding of China is often rather basic. And when understanding is not profound or deep, the public can very easily form opinions one way or the other, but opinions, let's say, that are led by a negative development, an incident, etc., which takes us in a direction where we do not want to go. I think that is where I think that the government, governments, I should say, because we have powerful provinces the way that Australia has powerful states, 
Governments and their collective need and educational institutions to be taking a long-term view, which doesn't ignore the negative short-term developments or individual in uh, incidents, but looks beyond them to where we want to situate the relationship several years on. We're probably not going to be as long-term in our perspective as China tends to be. I'm not talking about decades as they can be, but rather looking more than just a few weeks or months ahead and to where you want the relationship to land. Uh, and we have to compete with others for market share, time of their leadership, etc. So uh, a government that wants to uh, move beyond the incident of the day, deal with it perhaps, but then move on, I think that's critical to our success. Is there evidence of American pressure on Canada about you getting too comfortable with China? Because the, the US Embassy in Canberra has been very agitated about what they they see, I, I think excessively agitated, about what they see as Chinese soft power, um, in particular um, the readiness of the Australian government to approve the sale of the Port of Darwin to a private Chinese company. They got very agitated about that, is there? Um, and, and we assume that their representations are behind the recent tilt in attitudes towards China by Australia. Any evidence of that from Canada? There is some evidence. The um, U.S.-China Economic and Security Commission, which is a part of Congress, not of the executive branch, has been recently outspoken in a way that they have not been outspoken in the past about the sale of one small Canadian high-tech company to China that has had Defense Department purchases. It's one of their major clients. This is not something we saw previously, so this, I think, is a relatively new development. What we haven't seen as yet, to my knowledge, is substantive public comment at the highest level. Um, what might be happening behind closed doors with our, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa it might well be there's something similar. But there can also be what I would call sometimes of um, anticipatory fear. In other words, mm -hmm. you, you begin to flinch or to pull back because what they might say or do um, that is the Americans, and that to me can be as pernicious and problematic. It's problematic in another way. Um, you may find, if we go all the way back to the 60s, before we established relationship with China, we wanted to. We were one of the earliest in 1970, but some of the policy workers in the Prime Minister's office and the Foreign Affairs Department um, were being told by the Americans just months before the Kissinger opening to China, don't go anywhere near the Chinese, then all of a sudden we find ourselves behind where they're at. And uh, this is one of the dangers as well, in my view, if you become too gun-shy, so to speak, i use a Canadian expression, perhaps an Australian one as well, if you become fearful of what the Americans might do when they may not even have said or done anything, then you're going to be constrained, excessively constrained, in my view. Well, when you were going through that experience in Canada back in 1971, um, the coalition government in Canberra was ruling out any opening by Australia to China, any move towards exchange, exchanging diplomatic recognition, because it would have involved, they thought, an argument with Washington. Gough Whitlam, who was then leader of the Labour Party in opposition, dared to go up to China as opposition leader in 1971 and talk to Zhou Enlai. He was branded by the Conservative Australian Prime Minister at the time, Sir William McMahon, as the Manchurian candidate. McMahon said Whitlam had been played like a, a trout on the line by that master fisherman, Joe Enlai. Whitlam 
was in Tokyo on his way back to Australia when the shock news went out. Kissinger himself, on behalf of President Nixon, was in Peking. Well, we were perhaps in a somewhat more favourable position in... You'd already recognised. In 1970. And our Prime Minister, the, the father of the current Prime Minister was the driving force in the late 60s uh, to open negotiations with the Chinese. And so as leader of the government, not in opposition, he was in a position to act upon his instincts and uh, not to be, we're in the position right next door. And you've probably heard this analogy before that uh, living next to the United States is like sleeping with an elephant. Um, If they roll over, you're in trouble. Um, But we had defied um, American concerns over trade with Cuba. Uh, it was Conservative Prime Minister Diefenbaker who did so, and it was also Conservative Prime Minister Diefenbaker who resisted U.S. pressure to stop grain sales to China. So perhaps because we are so close and, and exposed to that pressure, we've sometimes grown and necessitated having the ability to withstand that pressure and make careful decisions. We don't do it casually, but carefully when we think that no, I'm sorry, but we're going to do this. Is Canada confident enough to, to make a China policy without running to Washington and getting approval first? I think we are. Um, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. Of course, the last thing we want to see is a sharp deterioration of that U.S.-China relationship. The degree mm-hmm. to which it deteriorates might mean that the pressure ramps up significantly. You've got to take sides. Well, that's what we don't want. The greatest mm. fear we have in the 21st century is going to be increasingly dominated by those two great powers is to be uh, in a situation where we are forced to take sides. We don't want that. We want U.S. to get along with Washington, sorry, Beijing to get along with Washington, which then gives us an opening um, to pursue good relations and good trade relationships with both. That's where we want to be. Yeah, Yeah, all American allies, I think, are in that position where they want that bilateral between Beijing and Washington to be ticking over smoothly. Sure. And... I mean, I hope this isn't wrong comment here in Australia, but we don't want to be more Catholic than the Pope. In other words, becoming anti-China, because we think that's where, China, where America might be, yeah. and that's not where we want to be. We yeah. want to be pursuing our own interests. Especially as Trump, and I, no, one, no one has said it so far about this visit, appears to have settled on a transactional relationship with China. He's, one, pressing them to do more on North Korea, which is in America's interests, and second... Uh, maintaining a dialogue with them about trade and pressuring them on trade access. It's a transactional relationship. I think you raise a very good point, Professor, in that, uh, and I think that's Trump's style. I must say I'm not, uh, I'm nervous a bit about the way because mm. his, his targets shift and move around and his views can change quickly. But he is a transactional person. He's a transactional president. And I think that when all when he's finished making his calculations, what is in the net interest of America, he tends to side with um, a, a transactional relationship. And at the end of the day, I think he tends to listen to, I could be wrong on this, the views of corporate America. And corporate America has huge stake in the China relationship. Virtually every one of the Fortune 500 countries and companies in the United States needs China trade or depends on China trade to some extent. And the degree which is influenced by that, I'm hopeful that he comes out in the right place. And you think Kushner might be the, the conduit for those corporate that corporate wisdom reaching the ears of this president? I would think that uh, Kushner and his wife are both clearly powerful people within that relationship, and Kushner does seem to have that role. And um, I think that the president depends on that advice and involves 
his son-in-law in those in those arrangements more so than his own State Department. The TPP, um, uh, Trump abrogated America's leadership role, pulled out of that. Um, what's going on with with Canada? Just pick apart the events of uh, the last few days in in Vietnam, and explain to uh, an Australian listening public why Trudeau didn't turn up. Well, I wasn't part of the delegation, so I can't give you necessarily the insider scoop. But the TPP presents a dilemma for us with President Trump in a way that it didn't with President Obama. President Obama, we saw, and our previous government realized that if TPP was going to go forward, giving our Asian partners privileged access to the U.S. market, access which Australia already has and which Canada already has, that we needed to be there particularly for the Japanese market. So that was the calculation we made. But when the Americans withdrew from TPP, and when Trump continued with his electoral commentary post-election post mm -hmm. and as, as president, that um, TPP was, was a menace, basically, something which we wanted nothing to do with, we began to recalculate. I'm regretful that we ended up with this imbroglio, this um, problem in Vietnam, which would not have been something which I think is in our net interest and is embarrassing all around, embarrassing particularly for us. But if TPP go, were to go forward with us in it, one of the challenges for us is that it will lower significantly tariffs on automobiles. And our fear is, I believe, that Trump, when he settles on what he's going to do about NAFTA, which may well be to tear it up, and then to forge a bilateral arrangement with us, either the one which will come automatically into effect, the previous Canada-US free trade agreement, or some new instrument, that Trump's instincts will be to raise domestic um, requirements for automobiles and other products. In other words, the last thing that I think Americans win Trump want is an agreement with Canada whereby Asians can arrive, make investments in Canada, will then enter uh, duty-free in the United States. So that is, I think, one of the dilemmas that's being, if I'm guessing correctly, fought mm -hmm. out in cabinet uh, between the various members who represent different constituencies in the Canadian economy, what is the best spot to be at, and particularly those who value the privileged access to the Japan market, we already have good access to the Australian market, and those who are fearful that this agreement will just give Trump more ammunition. I understand Canada hasn't yet a free trade agreement with, with uh, China. That's correct, uh, although I think it's a poorly kept secret that within a few weeks, when our Prime Minister goes to, to Beijing early mm. in December, that around that time there'll be an announcement that we're going to move to full negotiations. We've finished four rounds of, of consultations, yeah. and I think that we're on the cusp of doing so. The government of my country has been careful not to make a public disclosure. I think you'll understand that they want to save that for the Prime Minister, but I think most folks have, have come to the correct conclusion that this is imminent. Would uh, the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement, which uh, our former Trade Minister Andrew Robb said was a state-of-the-art agreement, and the first between a developed country and China, um, be something of a model, something of a benchmark? I think it is that. Now, on the Chinese side, their view was, and I've been told this by a senior Chinese official, let's just cross out Australia and write in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a little bit more ambitious for that, but there's also a complication in that our industrial sector is relatively large, particularly because of the 
trade across the border, a border that to some extent doesn't exist in terms of certain industries which are heavily integrated uh, between the United States and Canada. So the agreement will have to be different, have to take into account. I think we'll, what we're looking for is probably Australia Plus, in the same way perhaps that Australia now is looking at an enhanced chapter or with some certain parts of it renegotiated to improve it. And I think we want to land on that spot, perhaps where Australia would like to go, we'd like to be there. That doesn't mean it's going to be easily done. And my guess is in that we have a bit of the Trump problem in Canada as well. Trade agreements are not universally admired by the population. So my guess is that the current government, which has two more years to run in its mandate, will probably want to negotiate, but land, um, have that election arrive before the agreement is concluded. Whereas on the Chinese side, I think they want this done rapidly. And as I mentioned, just let's give the Canadians what Australia has and let's move on quickly. With foreign investment, is there territory in, in, in Canada, parts of the Canadian economy, that are clearly understood to be off-limits? There are, and I'd like to keep that list short. Uh, once you start down the role of national securities involved, which it may be in certain mm. things, the wiring of, of government offices or, or um, defense industries, etc., fine. Yep. But my opinion, if you let the security people loose with no restraint, before you know it, I'm kidding here, but they'll start telling you that milk powder and, uh, and, and prams for children are somehow a security. I'm exaggerating, of course, yeah. and making a joke of that. But if you, if you allow it to be defined by those whose job it is to be security-minded, they'll expand and expand and expand to the point that there'll be virtually nothing left. In my view, what governments have to do is to look, take a hard look at security claims in, at all times and say, are we really convinced or are, are we being excessively cautious? Australia is going through phases of China panic. Um, 130,000 Chinese students in Australia, for example, and there have been a score of headlines about them bullying their lecturers, closing down discussion. We've studied it. There have been precisely four alleged cases of Chinese doing that, and on closer examination... You're looking at, in one case, Chinese students going up to a lecturer and saying, we don't think Hong Kong and Taiwan should be described as countries. We, we got very excited in the media about donations from two Chinese property developers to Australian political parties, big donations. But there are a total of 300 Chinese companies in the Chamber of Commerce here, and they gave nothing. But there are headlines about Beijing buying the Australian political parties. Uh, it, it's China panic. Um, is there anything comparable in Canada? I think there is to some extent. Um, the questions of students in lecture halls, I mean, I give lectures and I've dealt with sensitivities of Chinese about, <coughs> about Taiwan. Mm. I dealt with them right there in the lecture hall. Mm. I hear you, that's your view. I'll continue with my lecture, but yes, you've made your point. The fact that it gets beyond a university, let alone just beyond a classroom, is to me unnecessary. I mean, these are there are minor transactional issues. I've had bigger arguments with Canadian students who didn't like something I said. I've dealt with that successfully right in the classroom. On issues like such where you have funding allegations, etc., well, let's say for a moment with one of these allegations happens to be true. Um, the way to deal with that, in my view, is before the incident even arises, the government of Canada, let's say, makes clear to the Chinese side, the Chinese government, these are the things which are kosher, these are the things which we will not tolerate crystal clear guidelines and when you cross that we will deal with it either in private or publicly 
Part of the problem is that I think that sometimes the, the Chinese are in unknown territory. And they are capable, like every government, I suppose, of misbehavior or going too far in, in this or that. But you deal with that one issue and you try to not let it contaminate the whole thing. Once it gets into a, a, a tit-for-tat in the, in the media wars, I think you've been away or you've been out-fenced, out out-foxed. And I think uh, I, uh, Canadians don't, I don't want us to be pushovers. So our government to be a pushover. Chinese do something we don't like, we tell them about it, first behind closed doors, and if that doesn't work, perhaps even in public. But make it clear beforehand what you're going to tolerate and what you won't, and then move on. Make the rules clear. Yes. Well, that's, they're, they're all very relevant observations. Gordon, thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Professor. And thank you for the time you've given us. Ladies and gentlemen, please look at our other, listen to our other podcast. Um, we've got some very interesting material down here on the ACRI website. Uh, none more interesting, though, than this, this conversation with Professor Gordon Holden, Director of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta in Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. To find out more about ACRI's research and events, visit our website, australiachinarelations.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.